morning. Well, the summer is over, isn't it? No, it's not? Okay, good. I want to I wanna live where you live. <laughs> My summer's over. <laughs> But we had a, a wonderful time of vacation. We spent some, I spent some time in, in backpacking for about a week with Stephen Elliott, which I really enjoyed. And then Shelly and I spent a few days at the coast, which I enjoyed even more. And now it's, uh, it's good to be home. I was here last Sunday and really enjoyed uh, the message of, of uh, our pastor from the South. And uh, I encourage that because it's not often that we can hear from somebody who's been through such a difficult time and yet who has such a vibrant uh, knowledge of the Word and relationship with God to put that into uh, perspective and translation for, for us. And so it was good to hear from Rick Warren uh, last week want to remind you that <clears throat> these recommendation cards are so important, we urge you, I personally ask you to prayerfully uh, not only consider who the Lord might prompt you to recommend to be a part of uh, our leadership but also to pray for the process. It is a holy process, I think. And I wouldn't say that if I, I didn't have the strongest convictions about it, because uh, it, and you can learn about the process in some sense from just looking at those cards and reading both the scripture and then uh, the, the practices uh, as a part of that. But it doesn't really convey how much prayer goes into it. We have people from the congregation that are part of that, as well as leadership from within the church. And they invest a great deal of of prayer, and the process takes place. It's not the work of one or two people. It's certainly not a unilateral or individual decision by any means, and it is constructed in such a way as to heighten our discernment of God's leading, because we're really looking not for people for us to appoint, but those that God does. So join us in that prayerfully be, uh, be praying with us over the next month as those recommendations come in, and uh, the process will continue beyond that. It usually takes at least a couple of months, so uh, please be a part of that in prayer. I really appreciate it. And if you're looking to make a difference in the work world, if, uh, like me, sometimes you just want to shake your fist at the television, because uh, it's, it's a cruel, cruel world out there, and it can be discouraging, and we sometimes feel overwhelmed by things that we can't control. And crazily, we can be sitting in the privacy of our own living room, and yet, in a sense, we're a witness to the world and what's going on all over the place. And it sometimes can just be overwhelming. And sometimes you can be left with a feeling of, what difference do I make? But in our children's ministry, you can touch the life of a person and it can make a difference for them in a way that is in truly significant. 
So I ask you to prayerfully consider if there are things that immediately crowd you with the idea that this would just never work, I couldn't make that happen, maybe get some more facts before you make that decision. You can talk to Harriet or you can talk to Kathleen or call the church and say, who do I talk to about serving? I need to ask some questions. We'll get those answers for you and then you can pray responsibly and intelligently about it. But, you know... and, and if you know my story, I was out of the church, but I'll t- <laughs> I, don't, I believe it's the Holy Spirit that brings those things to mind. But I have memories of, of people who invested in me when I was a child, and they are a part of the collage that God just won't let you escape, this collage in which it's just this multicolored picture of His love expressed through people whose hearts are so different than the cold, cruel world in which sometimes we find ourselves living. You can be a part of that collage to somebody else. Now, this morning, we resume a a series which I am really enjoying. I hope you still are too, because uh, I'm not going to give it up right away. But uh, we're looking at the parables of Jesus, simple stories, daring truths. And this morning, we want to look at the parable of the blind who lead the blind. And so if you will, if you haven't already turned to the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, we're going to begin reading at verse 27. The parable itself is in verse 39. Luke chapter 6 verse 39. But it's set in a very wonderful context. And I want us to appreciate it because the parable illumines that context or illumines what Jesus has been saying. And I think that's even indicated by the word, and he told a parable also, which means in addition or complementing what he's been saying. So let's begin at verse 27. If you will hear the words of Jesus. But I tell you who hear. Love your enemies. Do good. To those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, don't stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Don't judge, you won't be judged. Don't condemn, you'll not be condemned. 
Forgive. You'll be forgiven. Give, and it'll be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Ever see dogs romping and affectionately playing with one another? So you say or think to yourself, nothing could be friendlier. But see what their friendship amounts to by throwing a piece of meat between them. That will tell you. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of a contemporary, somebody who lived at the same time as the Apostle Paul, at second half of the first century. He's a philosopher. Happened to be reading him yesterday, and I just thought, that is just perfect. Because he goes on to illustrate, he says, uh, in the same way, throw a small piece of land between relatives. And I think that we understand that because when we think of divisions that we've experienced, some of the harshest and hardest, you know, come among relatives, loved ones. And it's interesting, in fact, our philosopher friend draws upon this, is so often there's a history of, of a, a beautiful history of, of shared and mutual experience, but then, boom, something happens. And that's what he's talking about. He calls it a universal principle. Universal principle, and he applies it to every living thing. In fact, he warns us, he says, do not be deceived. And this is the principle. He says that every living thing is to nothing so devoted as to its own interest. Every living thing is to nothing so devoted as its own interest. In fact, he validates it with all kinds of examples because he wants us to understand that if, if we're so devoted to our own interest, our own advantage, what best serves us, what we think perhaps will validate our reason for existence, Whatever it is that we prize so greatly, he says, that is our self-interest. And he says, in that case, brother or father or child or loved one, anything that stands in the way will become the object of hate, accusation, and curse. He says it's our nature to love nothing so much 
as our own interest. In fact, he says, that interest becomes so dear that it supplants, it takes the very place of father, brother, kinsman, country, God. And he talks about how it can be the cause of divisions between nations, marriages, families, and friends. In fact, he illustrates it with two brothers of the same mother and father, brought up together, played together, slept in bunk beds, hugged each other. In other words, he paints a picture of a history of the deepest affection and mutual experience. And he says, if you knew them, you'd scoff at the idea that they could be anything but brothers, friends, and partners for life. And yet, when the throne of their father, like meat, was cast between them, they each prayed to kill the other. Now that's dramatic stuff. But Jesus talks about those same kinds of inner drives. He talks about scales. He says if you take a pair of scales, and he says if you take your interest and you put it in one scale, you separate your self-interest, your interest, and put it in one scale and put family, friends, country, justice itself in the other scale, that which is in the other scale is in jeopardy, at risk, in danger. It will be outweighed by self-interest. But he says, if you put your interest and in the same scale, you put friends, righteousness, things honorable, country, parents, all are safe. Well, I raise this because I thought it a quick way to remind us of things that we often forget. That we have a nature. He says it's our nature. And he says it's a universal principle. In other words, no one is excluded. And I think if we accept that as valid, I certainly do. It's the message of the Bible because that self-interest is, is really the definition of the very source and power of sin. Or what the Bible calls sin. Let me illustrate it another way. Let me jump forward instead of 2,000 years ago. Let me come forward with a, a contemporary writer. His name is Lawrence Crabb. Some of you may have read some of his works. He's a committed Christian and counselor. And he's written a number of books. In his book, Effective Biblical Counseling, and you can find this on page 69, he says this, and I quote, as long as someone believes that he might sacrifice or at least risk his sense of worth by living responsibly, he will choose to live irresponsibly. I'll read it one more time. As long as someone believes that he might sacrifice or at least, at least risk his sense of worth by living responsibly, he will choose to live irresponsibly. And this is why, by the way, 
And I'm going to illustrate what he said with my own experience. But this is why, for example, marriages can be going along, or brothers can be going along, or friendships going along. You can have years of friendship in your history, or years of marriage in your history, but along the way, just like with those brothers, or just like with a person who comes in for counseling, the reality is is that if we get it in our head that our self-interest what we need most of all, what, uh, what will get us our true worth and value in this life, if that is separate from our spouse or what is noble, honorable, and virtuous, we will reject that because, in a sense, what we need most will run against what is responsible and choose to follow what is irresponsible. Let me illustrate in a real clear way. When I was in high school, and I think we parents, we can certainly understand this. I, as a high schooler once, can still understand this. And as a counselor, and as a pastor, and as a human being, I see it not only in my office and in my experience, but also in myself. But when I was in high school, I wanted to be accepted, deeply accepted and welcomed and received and liked. Everybody wants to be liked. And if I could just gain the acceptance of of people at my school, people that I wanted to like me, that I felt like if I had their approval, their acceptance, I would... I would count, I would matter, I would be somebody. I would indeed be someone that others could like and value. And in that process, to be liked, to be accepted by the friends I wanted, that drive, that desire, it caused me to defy my parents. It caused me to break the law, you know, to, it caused me to skip class, ditch class, it caused me to change friends, there were people that I wanted to be seen with and other people that I had known for years that now I no longer wanted to be seen around or to be friends with. It caused me to leave church. One decision at a time, I kept making these decisions out of my self-interest. And if somebody had come to me and said, or like, you know, if my parents had said to me, John, do the responsible thing. Well, the responsible thing is going to lead me away from my self-interest. The responsible thing is going to lead me away from what I think is going to fulfill my deepest felt needs. Doing the responsible thing is not going to get me what I need most in this world. And by the way, that's part of the problem. Because in this world, it's a whole different set of values. And those values are very different than the values that are so close to the heart of God and now close to the heart of us. Sometimes, we just need to be reminded or awakened 
to the reality of these rich and powerful truths revealed to us by Jesus Christ. By the way, our philosopher friend says the solution is to invest your interest in moral purpose. I mean, that's really the best you can do. Try to navigate life faithfully. But Jesus gives us an alternative which is out of this world. In fact, he is speaking to crowds. He's speaking to people who are disciples and who may be considering following Jesus or being a disciple of Jesus. And what he does is he says to them, well, here is where I'll take you. If you follow me, this is where you'll go. This is where I'm going to take you. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. And then when he talks about the parable, the blind leading the blind, I'm going to show you how that really, so to speak, sums up what he's been talking about. And then the kind of the climax or the finish of what we read is when he likens a student to the teacher and becoming like the teacher himself. In other words, he says, you're blind and you're following the blind and you're going to end up in a ditch. But if you'll follow me, you won't exceed, you won't graduate beyond the teacher, but you'll become like the teacher. And I'm your teacher. And that's what is indeed offered to us. We're living in a world that really is blind. And sometimes we discover that through our own experience. We're tired of being in a rut. We're tired of being caught in a pit. We're tired of being in a ditch. Why are we there? Because we're following the blind. And the blind lead us into the ditch. Jesus says, follow me. Follow someone with sight. And this morning, we need to hear again, perhaps, or for the first time, the call of Jesus, who says, let me lead you. Follow me. And we need to respond, lead me, Lord. Let your way be my way. That was a decision that many of us, I think, I'd like to think all of us have made, but it's something we have to return to again and again and again. Lead me, Lord. Let your way be my way. Because the world can just overwhelm you. When we were backpacking, we uh, did a 30-mile loop, and the further away you get from the trailhead, the less people you see. For two and a half days, we only saw four people, and that was just in a group kind of at a distance. And kind of the amazing thing is that when you're, when you're in that high country, if you're not down in a forest, like when you're above 10,000 feet, everything opens up. And you can look and actually see miles. The clarity and the, and the mountains, it's just majestic. And what you see with your eyes is so, if you will, loud. I mean, it is just so loud. You're looking at things you just seldom get a chance to see. And I mean, the space, the vista, the majesty, the, the volume, you know? I mean, it's bigger than any arena you've sat in. And what you're viewing just is powerful. And yet it's so quiet. It's so, in some ways, still. 
And it, it's just bizarre, you know, to be, in a sense, so alone with, with so much and so much serenity and silence. Then I came back to civilization. We went to the coast, went over to Pismo area. And like in an hour, in an hour, you can see a thousand people. The place is just a bustle, and it's almost so active you don't see anything. <laughs> it amazes me. It amazes me. It's way with the truth in our lives. Sometimes we see the truth, it's so majestic. We come and we worship, and the truth washes over us. And we, we, I don't know about you, but sometimes I actually feel purified. You know, I, I realize there's nothing sacramental about that. The purity, the, the cleansing, the holiness is always in Jesus Christ. But the practice, you know, of practicing the things of Jesus, bring that close to my heart and help me to understand it in a real way that touches my own experience. And so singing these hymns with you and being in the company of God's people is a holy thing in and of itself. But then we... we, we feel good and we trot out the door and we get in the car and we turn on the radio or we're passing billboards or we're entering with people into conversation or we walk in the house and we turn on the television or we listen, we plug our earbuds into our ear because we've got all of our special music or something we're listening to on our smartphone or we're getting texts and posts and the point is, is that the world just washes it all away. It's like the blindness sets back in. It is so overwhelming. We don't feel that because it's just the way it is. It's just like when we're in the city. It's, it's so natural and comfortable and sometimes we even long for it. We find our solace and our comfort and our company there. But I want you to know, we are giving so much attention and space to things that are a part of our ruin. What we're following is blind, and it's leading us into the ditch. Let me illustrate by what Jesus teaches us because we're going to see that His way is totally opposite. His way is the way of faith. His way is the way of God. And His way is the way of Christ-likeness. That's what I want us to kind of draw upon this morning. Let's look at verses 27 through 34. Jesus is saying to those listening, to those who are listening, he is in effect saying, follow me. And here's what following me looks like. Verse 27, love your enemies. Verse 27 again, do good to those who hate you. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. 
Verse 28 again, pray for those who mistreat you. Verse 29, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Verse 29 again, if someone takes your cloak, don't stop him from taking your tunic. This is so, this is the narrow way, is it not? This is the narrow way. You know, Jesus talked about there's the broad way, and then there's the narrow way, the less traveled way. This is so narrow and so less traveled that I wonder if anyone, you know, would of their own, without Jesus, even take this, this path. I really don't see it. But listen, even though we may be um, in, you know, in, in our initial response, it's like, that is just so contrary to the way I live and the way our world works that I, I, it just seems unrealistic. But before you just dismiss it, just let these thoughts wash over you. Just let these ideas wash over you. Just, just meditate on it a little bit. Love your enemy. Do good to those who mistreat you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Just the thoughts themselves, if you were, it lifts your spirit. It encourages you. It, it changes your outlook. It, it changes your mindset. It changes your attitude. And I mention that because we're so susceptible, you know, people tell us things, maybe things that aren't true, their attitude affects us, their outlook, their sour, dour, maybe godless or ungodly kind of outlook, their solutions to the world, those are the things that we feed on. And what do you think it does to us? It changes our dispositions, changes our outlook, changes our thinking. But here, Jesus takes this narrow way and he says, in effect, this is absolutely contrary to the way you live. This is absolutely upside down to the way you walk and the way you conduct your life. He knows it. What is the way that we live? What is the universal principle? What is the way that we tend to lead our lives? Look at verse 27 again. Using Jesus' contrast as a guide. If you hate me, I'll hate you. Right? You're my enemy, I'm your enemy. You hate me, I'm going to hate you. How about verse 28? If you curse me, I'll curse you. If you mistreat me, verse 28, I'll mistreat you. Verse 29, if you hit me, I'll hit you. Verse 29 again, if you take what's mine, I'll take what's yours. And that's blind behavior. 
In fact, Jesus emphasizes just how blind it is and how subject we are not to the leading of God, but to the leading of others. When he takes up in the next verses, verse 32, 33, and 34, he says, if you love me, I'll love you. That's the way we live. If you do good to me, I'll do good to you. If you repay me, of course, I'll lend to you. Isn't that the way we operate? But what is interesting here is in these verses, Jesus says, even sinners do that. Even sinners do that. See, you're you're nothing special when you love and you lend and you do good because people love and lend and do good to you. That's just what sinners do. And what does he mean by sinners? He means you don't need faith, you don't need Jesus, you don't need God to do those kinds of things because that's the way the world operates. That's blind behavior. But he says, if you follow me, if you need me, if you'll trust in me, if you'll put your faith in me, I'll take you places no one else can take you. You're in a ditch. I've got the eyes to lead you out. I have the truth to take you where you cannot go on your own. That's really significant because what he is saying, I know we, we just sometimes are boggled by whether we could do this, but it's not in our own strength. It's through Jesus. It's through following Him. And that's why His way is a way of faith. It's not the way of sinners. It's a way of following, which is just practical advice as to how to express faith. I'm going to go, I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to believe what you believe. I'm going to live how you live. But greater than enemies and greater than those who mistreat us and greater than those who hit us and greater than those who demand the very clothes we're wearing, Jesus is saying, here is a love that is so strong that no one is excluded, not even you and me. This love is a love that touches us first, that revolutionizes us first. And in effect, in verse 31, he says, can you dream of such love? Look at verse 31 again. What does it say? He says, do unto others what you wish. You could translate it wish. What you want. You could even... You wouldn't be contrary to Scripture if you included the idea, if you, if you put in the word dream. Do to others that you dream they would do to you. Do to others the way you imagine or would wish or would hope. That's the kind of out-of-this-world love that Jesus is saying we need to demonstrate ourselves that come from following Him, that come and rise out of a love which originates 
with God. That's the golden dream, not just the golden rule. Can you imagine such a world? It starts in our hearts with what God has done for us and touches others. Jesus said, that's my world, that's my way, and that's my kingdom. That's the way of God, the Most High, the Father. In verse 35 and 36, he says, love your enemies. Here he kind of bags everything that he said together in summary. Love your enemies, do good, lend expecting nothing in return. And here's the justification. See the word for? There is the validation. If you're looking for bedrock for this kind of narrow path, and whether you should take it, here is what Jesus tells us. He says, He, that is God, is kind to people who are ungrateful and wicked. The word is actually good. He is good. If you were to look this up in a moral dictionary, this is the kind of good that would be defined as moral good. Not just utilitarian good, but the kind of real, true, pure good that then works its way out into utilitarian or practical and functional ways. Sometimes we'll say, hey, that's good because it works. But it's not intrinsically good. It's good only as long as it works. Here is God who is good, and because He is good, He is good even when people do not appreciate it. They are ungrateful. It says He is good to those. He is good to people who are ungrateful. And he is good to people who are immoral. In other words, who don't share his values. In other words, Jesus is talking about truths that represent people who know God, know his heart, and walk closely with him. Because they share his character, and his values. That's why he can say, your reward will be great, and you will be kids of the Most High. Children of the Most High. In uh, John chapter 8, verses 39 through 44, Jesus is having a conversation with the Jews. And it is there that we really get the definition of paternity. I mean, how do you define, back in Jesus' day, whether you're the child of someone? Well, today we, we have blood tests, we have DNA by which we can determine. But back then, Jesus said paternity is established by whether or not you're a chip off the old block. Have you ever heard that expression? I know it's pretty old, but when I was a kid, sometimes parents would say, they would pat my head when I was little and they would say, you're a chip off the old block. In other words, you just, you're like your dad. And Jesus says to the Jews who say, we're children, we're sons of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you're not. And they get upset, of course. How, how, how is it you say we're not his sons? And Jesus says, well, you do what your father does. He says, your, devil, your father's the devil because you desire the things the devil desires. You care about what he cares about. You're influenced by what he does. And you see, if we want to be children of the Most High, as Jesus defines it, he says, when you do what he does, 
you'll be a chip off the old block. That is the encouragement that he gives us when he says, my way is the way of God. And it is the way of Christ-likeness. He says, you'll not exceed me, but you'll become like me. And that is such a beautiful inspiration. I mean, in the end, you don't have to be a philosopher. You don't have to know all this stuff. You just have to follow Jesus. Don't ever lose sight of that. And Jesus, why would you follow him? Because of who he says he is? Because of what he reveals? He reveals God. He reveals the very heart of God. And because he loves you like no one will ever love you. He stands for the very things that he's calling us to. He hung for them too. Because he loves you and me like that. And that's the very power that is sown into our hearts, that love by which we then, in turn, love like that because we're His children. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us and as... Any Sunday, I would... I would invite you, if God has been speaking to your heart this morning, if you'd like to pray about something on your heart, pray about following Jesus, pray about returning to following Jesus, pray on behalf of yourself or someone else. After I pray, uh, I'll be down here as will members of our pastoral staff and our elders and their wives, and we invite you to come if you'd like to pray with us, we would like to pray for you and what God has put on your heart. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus. He's everything to us. And we want to follow with our whole heart. How inspiring. What a dream. What a uh, majesty to love like you have loved us and we can through faith knowing it's at the heart of who you are and it makes us christ-like and that is a desire that we have thank you lord that we can begin today and we pray that we will in your strength and for christ's sake in jesus name we pray and all of god's people said amen